0: of its value, but many of you understand that value and rejoice in it. And so every time around this time of the year, there'll be some reference to it, and we acknowledge it in some fashion or other, and we are thankful not so much for the men though we give honor where honor is due, but for the grace of God that so mercifully stepped in, changed the course of history, and liberated amid so much darkness men from their fears and from their unbelief and their trust in all lesser things. So we are here today to hear afresh the great truths that liberated souls, thousands and thousands of souls liberated by the preaching of the everlasting gospel. And I trust today that as you hear the word preached from our preacher, you'll be blessed. Pastor Bartman is known by some of you, perhaps others, you do not know him. As I said yesterday morning, uh, I know him. I've recognize that he has many, we have many mutual friends, people that Dr. Cairns preached for him, Reverend Kimbrough has preached for him, Dr. Pernozian went up and spoke many times there, Dr. Castles, David Castles also has been a frequent speaker, and when you see that, you realize, well, he's a friend. He's certainly a friend. We have mutual friends in the gospel, and we're very thankful, and we had the opportunity to have lunch a few months back just to get acquainted and uh, we're very thankful that he agreed to come and bring the word. So uh, give him the warmest welcome. He will, he will close the service. He will go to that door. You make sure to show your appreciation to him this morning and at the very latest this evening as he will bring the word on that occasion also. Brother, you're very welcome. May the Lord help you.
1: Well, I want you to know I consider it a great honor to have been invited to speak at this Reformation weekend at Faith Free Presbyterian Church. I have had a lot of interaction with people in this congregation and others in the free church over the years, but I really never expected to be standing in this pulpit. And that has been a a delightful uh, privilege that has been extended to me at this time. Some of you I have known from longer ago than you probably would want me to uh, point out, but uh, back in the early 60s, I have known some of you, and uh, so it has been a joy over the years to have these contacts, these Christian um, relationships that we have enjoyed, and a number of you have been to our church in North Carolina, and we cherish those times as well. Uh, Bill and Joan Pinkston and Ed and Pam Dunbar have been a number of times and we thank the Lord for them and the Panosians, Lisa driving them the last several times they came because uh, Dr. Panosian was no longer able to drive and on it goes. We just have had a, a wonderful uh, time of relationship with people in this church and we thank the Lord for it. It's also good to have a couple of our own Uh, students from our church who are at Bob Jones University who have come to hear their pastor today. Thank you. You've heard me many times, but you came today. Uh, Jonathan Freeman, whose own parents uh, met when they were students at Bob Jones University, and here he is as a result of that. And uh, Olivia Verroy, likewise, her parents met when they were students at Bob Jones, and she's here as a result of that. And so we're delighted to have them. Um, Jonathan's mother is playing the piano at our church this morning, and uh, Olivia's grandfather was filling our pulpit this morning. So, anyway, it's just uh, it's a delight to be here. I hope that my speech is clear to you. I'm under the impression that you are so accustomed to hearing the word with an Irish. Accent and Irish brogue that you may have trouble understanding American English, but I will do the best I can to uh, communicate God's word to you in the tongue that God gave to me. And we all have to use the one that the Lord gave us, don't we? Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 4. When your pastor so graciously invited me to come he suggested some things that might be appropriate for a reformation emphasis and i had to tell him that basically i'm not a historian i don't really think it would be wise for me to try to venture much into that arena i'm one thing i'm a preacher uh, the best i can be but i'm i'm a preacher and so Uh, I suggested to him a series of messages on the doctrine of justification because that indeed is the key to the Reformation. That's the heart of the Reformation, the doctrine of justification. And so on Saturday morning, my sermon was the doctrine that rocked the Western world, and that doctrine, of course, is the doctrine of justification. And we drew that from Romans one sixteen 16, and 17, because that's the text that when Martin Luther understood it, as he struggled many years to understand it unsuccessfully, but when God opened his heart to understand the truth of that text, he was saved, he was changed, his world was rocked, and then by the gracious providence of God, the whole Western world was indeed rocked because of the ministry of that one man. And I have often thought about the sovereignty of God in all of that. There were others before him that were equally fervent and equally uh, committed to the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, whose own voices could have sparked a reformation in the world, but that was not the plan of God, and there Ministry was cut short. They had some influence, and, and indeed, their influence was not lost. I'm thinking of men like John Huss and and uh, Wycliffe and so forth. And, and these men were greatly used of God, but their their labors did not result in a Reformation. They were cut off. And then along comes Luther, and the devil certainly did his best to cut him off, The Church of Rome did their best to cut him off, but they were unable to. God did not allow them to. God, in his sovereign purposes, held back the opposition, and so this man's labors went on and on and on and on and multiplied, and today we are celebrating what happened as a result of the efforts of that man, Martin Luther, when he possibly nailed the 95 Theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg in 1517. Our learned historian has caused us to question the historical accuracy of that account. It may or may not be true, but we do know that he published those, or at least he wrote those, and they were taken, and the printing press published copies of them and sent them all across Europe, and I remember this from hearing Dr. Panosian, that within two weeks that those 95 theses had spread all across Europe. That's incredible. In that day that's incredible. In our day, the push of a computer button would accomplish that and more. But in that day, to think that those Those statements were spread across Europe in two weeks' time, and people were buzzing. They were talking about them. That is an incredible thing, and how did that happen? I already mentioned it's the sovereignty of God. He caused that to happen in that way at that time. Well, today we're going to expand a little bit upon what we started on Saturday morning at the men's breakfast The doctrine of justification by faith is introduced in Romans 1, 16 and 17, but as you know, that's actually the the conclusion of Paul's introduction to the epistle to the Romans. And when he proclaims in chapter 1 that the gospel, salvation, is by faith and not by works, When he tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's really an introduction to the doctrine of justification. That's the text that gripped Luther's heart when he understood it. Righteousness is received by faith, not by works. But then the apostle goes on, led by the Spirit of God, to unfold that doctrine in greater detail. And that's what's taking place, basically, through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And so we're just picking out little bits and pieces here and there. But we're talking now, about justification, by grace alone, through faith alone... As it is illustrated by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. This is my text for today. But I'm then also going to go back and read a few verses from chapter 3. But here's Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So we have illustrated by Paul two men from the Old Testament to show that justification is received by believing, not by working. And he shows us that first in the case of Abraham and secondly in the case of David. But this is really illustrating what he has already explained in chapter 3. You know that in Romans, after the introduction, verses 1 through 17, Paul starts by painting the blackness of sin throughout the world, that is, it applies to every man, every woman, Jew and Gentile. Chapter 1, what a horrible picture of the depravity of mankind. And then he moves into chapter 2 and says, And you Jews who think you're better than that, you're not. You're just as sinful as the Gentiles that were described in chapter 1. And so he paints this this picture, this accurate picture of the blackness of man's soul, soiled as it is by sin. And in chapter 3, he brings that to a conclusion by telling us there is none righteous, no, not one. Jew, Gentile, whoever it may be, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then after elaborating on that a bit, he comes to that well-known text, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Text that we're very familiar with. And then picking up with verse 24 of chapter 3, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. And pay careful attention now to these next several verses. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. In Romans 3, Paul makes it clear That sin is the problem that separates us from God, that makes all of us condemned sinners before a holy God, all of us worthy of eternal condemnation. And what can we do about that? That's the problem that Martin Luther wrestled with. He saw himself a sinner. He saw himself condemned. He understood the great righteousness of God. The great gap between himself and God, God's holy, perfect righteousness and his utter sinfulness. He understood all of that. And yet, because of his background, he was trained to think in terms of doing things in order to overcome his sinfulness and to make himself acceptable before God. In order to meet the standard of God's righteousness, he had to do righteous things. He had to become righteous in himself. He had to pray and do penance and deprive himself of, of sleep and of food and, and to afflict his, his body and, and all of the things that he attempted to do in order to make himself righteous before God. And yet he knew in his soul that none of this availed. It didn't make him one little bit better. It didn't get him one inch closer to God and so he was condemned before God, and he didn't know what the solution was. And that's what Paul is now bringing his readers to in chapter 3. None righteous, all have sinned. What can we do about it? What is the solution? Well, the solution is not in anything that we can do about it, but God, in his grace, has done The only thing that can be done. He provided for himself the righteousness that he required. In his holiness, he required a perfect righteousness. And none of us can provide that. In his grace, he provided a perfect righteousness in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive that by faith. Not because, not because that's the easier way, but because that's the only way. I have a little pet peeve I'm going to address at this point. Once in a while, I pe- hear people say in regard to the gospel, well, all you've got to do is believe. Just believe. As if that's some light thing. And you don't understand. No, it's not all you've got to do is believe. It's the easier thing instead of all the harder things you might endeavor to do. But it is the only thing. It's not all you've got to do is believe. All you can do is believe. Understand the utter sinfulness of your heart, the other inability of your nature. Understand, this is the only thing you can do, but this is what God has provided. Believe, and you shall be saved. And that's what we are brought to at the end of Romans chapter 3. And it seems to me that in the last four verses, 27 through 31, Paul is addressing critics. Three applications from the doctrine of justification through faith. And he tells us in verses 27 and 28 that this doctrine, justification by faith, eliminates boasting. And he tells us in verses 29 and 30 that this doctrine, if I could put it this way, expands benefits. And he tells us in verse 31 that this doctrine promotes righteousness. Now notice that before we get into chapter 4. This is the doctrine that eliminates boasting. Chapter 3 verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Any concept of salvation that allows man to boast, or to put it another way, any concept of salvation that allows man to take any credit whatsoever for it is contrary to the Bible doctrine of justification. There is no room for boasting in God's way of salvation. It's excluded. Justification by faith eliminates boasting. Justification by faith also, we might say, expands benefits. That is the benefits of salvation. Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only, as so many of them thought? Oh, no. Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify The circumcision, not by circumcision. He shall justify the circumcision, but not because of their circumcision. He shall justify the circumcision, any of them who are justified. How? By faith. Well, how does he justify the uncircumcised? By faith. Same way. One God, one way of salvation. But the Jews thought the only way of salvation was to become a Jew, to be circumcised, to come under the the law of Moses, and in that way, one could be justified before God. So what did that do for the Gentiles? That left them out. That left, I would suppose I'm being accurate in saying, that leaves all of us out, or nearly all of us out. There may be some here who are of the physical descendants of Abraham, but that leaves all of us out. So if salvation is by circumcision by keeping the law, by being Jewish, by being a physical descendant of Abraham, then where would I be? Where would you be? But, because salvation is by faith, we are justified by faith, then that expands the benefits of God's salvation to all the world, Jew and Gentile, all who believe. So he addresses that criticism. And then there's a criticism about law. Well, if you say that salvation is just by faith instead of by keeping the law, if you say that salvation is by believing and not by doing the Ten Commandments and keeping the golden rule and doing all of these things, then, and you've all heard people argue this way, then you're just saying people can believe in Jesus and live however they want to and they can live like a, like a heathen and still go to heaven. Of course, we know that's not true, but verse 31 makes a statement about that. Do we then, through this doctrine of a justification by faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish So that knocks down three arguments, doesn't it? But now we come to the illustration of this doctrine in chapter 4. First of all, illustrated by the primary example of Abraham and then by the secondary example of David. And here's the principal case of Abraham considered historically in the first two verses. Considered scripturally, we might say, in verse 3 and considered analytically in verses 4 and 5. Historically, back to verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining the flesh, hath found? That translation could be misleading. If you think what it's saying is, that Paul is saying, what did Abraham our father, as physical descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, That that's what he's talking about. In other words, talking to Jews. No, it's clear that's not what he's doing here. Though there probably were some, and undoubtedly were some, Jewish believers in Christ in the church at Rome when he was writing. He makes it clear from the very beginning that he primarily has Gentiles believing in Christ in view when he's writing this epistle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's writing to the Gentiles. But what he's actually saying, it's just a matter of... um, attaching the phrases in the the right place. So what he's saying is, what shall we say then that Abraham found pertaining to the flesh? What did he find about his own flesh? That's what he's asking. What did Abraham discover about his own flesh? Did he discover that in himself and his flesh and his Efforts that he was able to be righteous? And the answer is no, that's not what he found. What he found pertaining to his flesh is that his flesh was corrupt. Now I'm told by reading those who study these things that the Jewish rabbis painted the picture of Abraham as the nearly perfect individual and the one who earned righteousness before god i 've I've been made to understand that this is replete in the writings of the rabbis in regard to Abraham, Abraham, the father of our nation, Abraham, this wonderful man, and of course, they highlight all the the remarkable things that God enabled him to do, and there are certainly many of those. But they ignored some of the other things that the Bible also accurately records about him. As we learned this morning, that's one of the differences in that the Bible portrays its people accurately. And so we know of Abraham that he went to Egypt and he lied about his wife and said she was his sister. And if you can really think that through, I mean, I don't want you to dwell on it too much, but you understand what he was doing? He was basically saying, I give you to Pharaoh. Go on into his harem to spare my life. God didn't allow that. But that's what Abraham did it's not exactly an act of heroism, is it now It's not an act of courage that's not a, a an act of 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 uh, goodness to be emulated and highlighted that is about as is about as bad as you can get to think of what he did and he did it again later on with Abimelech he didn't even learn from his first lesson Abraham was no saint to put it that way I mean he was through faith in in God's word but he was not a perfect man far from it he was a wretched sinner and that's what Verse 1 is saying, what did Abraham find out regarding his own flesh? He found out that he was a hell-deserving sinner who would go straight to the hell that he deserved to go to except by God's grace. 4 verse 2 tells us, if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. But he knew... He knew knew his own flesh well enough to know that he couldn't be justified by works. He, He understood that he was dependent upon God's grace. If the rabbis didn't understand it, that's one thing, but Abraham understood it. That's what he found out about his flesh. No, he is not an example of one who earned righteousness. The way the rabbis arrived at that conclusion. Well, of course, this is the conclusion they wanted to arrive at. And so they found a way in Scripture to back up what they wanted to teach anyway, as so many people do. When they teach error, they go to Scripture and they just uh, manipulated enough to make it teach their error. And so when we are told in in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness, it was Abraham's faith that God used, God counted the, the chattel by which he then imputed righteousness to Abraham. But that word believe or exercise faith, we, we see the same thing in, in English, that we have this close, close connection between the word faith and the word faithfulness. It's in the Greek, it's, in, it's all throughout the Bible, and we find the same thing here in Genesis Chapter 15, verse 6. And so what the rabbis have done is is manipulated that just a little bit. And they said, Abraham, rather than exercised faith, and God counted it to him for righteousness. They say, Abraham exercised faithfulness. And so God said, you've been faithful. You've been good. You've done good deeds. You've done good works. You've earned salvation. Turned it totally on its head. But isn't that the way error is supported with a manipulation of scripture? But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say Abraham exercised faithfulness and God said, Ah, you've done a good job. You've earned righteousness. I'll give it to you as a reward. No. Abraham believed. Abraham believed God. And dear friend, if you're going to be justified before a holy God, it will be that way or no way. If you will believe him, if you will believe him, if you will believe the gospel as he has given it to us, you will be justified. But if you will not, there's no other way that you can be made right before God and you must go out into eternity and face the judgment of a holy god with your own sins to give an account for. Abraham didn't obtain righteousness in a way that allowed him to boast absolutely not. And that's what we learn by considering the account historically. We look back at the record and we realize that Abraham's record of sinfulness disqualifies him for salvation. He, like all of us, was shut up in a corner. Only one thing to do, believe. That's all he could do, believe. And that's what he did and was justified. Or consider it scripturally, and there's the statement in verse 3, for what says the scripture? That's what settles the question, doesn't it? What says the scripture? Here's what the scripture says. Abraham believed God And it was counted unto him for righteousness. That, of course, is referring to Genesis 15, 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him for righteousness. I won't recount the history behind that statement. I'm assuming that you either do know it or you can find it out for yourself by by reading Genesis, from about chapter 12 onward. But it is a remarkable thing to me that what Abraham knew at that point, what had been revealed to him, would seem very paltry by our understanding of the gospel today. Now we don't know what else maybe Abraham knew that is not recorded in Scripture. And he may have known more than we, than we know that he knew than what the Bible tells us he knew. We do have that wonderful statement by, by Jesus that Abraham saw my day. Abraham saw Christ in some way. But unfortunately, again, enough details are given to us. We can't really know exactly what that means. I know some people put the whole gospel into that. Abraham saw my day, he saw saw the birth of Christ, he saw the life of Christ, he saw the crucifixion of Christ, he saw the resurrection of Christ, he saw the ascension of Christ. That may be stretching it a bit, we just really can't say that with certainty, can we? What can we say? We can say that whatever God had revealed to Abraham, whatever it was, be it great or small by our estimation, whatever it was, Abraham said, I believe it. I believe you, O Lord, have said it. I believe what you have said is true. I believe it. I believe. And God counted him righteous. God imputed to him righteousness. That's the doctrine. (laughs) Justification is by faith, not by works. Considered analytically, we have in verses 4 and 5. Now, to him that worketh, Paul is now becoming logical. Now we see Paul putting on his lawyer's cap. He does that from time to time. He's going to make a a logical argument. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It's as simple as this. If there's an arrangement that if you do this, then this is what you will receive by way of reward, by way of pay. Come to work for me and I'll pay you $15 an hour. You work 40 hours that week and you come to the man who hired you And what are you expecting? You're expecting a paycheck of $600, minus this, minus that, minus the other, all the things they take out of checks today. But you're expecting to receive the paycheck, and when he hands it to you, you don't drop on your knees and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for this wonderful gift that you just have given me so freely. No, you say, thank you for giving me the opportunity to earn my salary. But you earned it. If you come to the end of the week and you go to receive your salary that was agreed upon, and he says, (laughs) sorry, buddy, I've got nothing for you, then he has treated you, and he is now in debt to you, whether you're going to be able to collect that debt or not, I don't know, but he is in debt to you because he owes it to you. You earned it. That was the agreement. He owes it. Now, if salvation is by works, if the agreement is, if you do this and that and the other, then God will will justify you, then salvation is an arrangement, it's a debt. It's actually putting God into debt. All right, God, I did what you said, I did what you required, now you owe me salvation. God doesn't owe any man anything. So now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace. If if a person works for it, it's not a gift when he gets it at the end of his work week, but a debt. But, verse 5, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Which is it? Is salvation by what? God owes you, what you have obligated Him to, what you deserve because you met certain requirements? Is it a debt that God owes you that He must pay in order to be just, or is it a free gift of God? You know, everybody that I know, and not, not all people truly, but nearly every Christian that I know will say, well, yes, salvation is a gift, it's a gift of God. And yet, somehow, even in the minds of people, we can manipulate and turn it around and and turn it into some kind of an obligation or debt, such as, if we believe that the faith we offer to God is our own, we came up with it, and we offer it to God, and then he's obligated to give us salvation because of something we gave to him then salvation is by debt. It's not by grace. But if we understand truly as the Bible teaches that even the faith by which we lay hold on Christ is a gift of God, then it's all of grace from first to last. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, from faith to faith, faith beginning to end, every part, every particle, is based upon faith and it's all the gift of God and therefore we are debtors as top lady wrote in his song we are debtors to mercy alone and that's exactly what it is we are debtors to mercy alone we are debt indebted to God God's not indebted to us that's illustrated in the life of Abraham it's also illustrated in the life of David and we'll cover that quickly The case of David. David described the same process in verse 6. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man. Unto whom the Lord imputes righteousness. And what are those next two words? Without works. God imputes. God grants. God Credits, righteousness, without works. David found that out. And here's where we learn about that. Saying, verse 7, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That comes from Psalm 32. That's one of the penitential psalms. David wrote that after his great sin with Bathsheba. Which also included the murder of her husband, Uriah. You talk about somebody who deserved the utmost penalty, the utmost judgment. There was a man. He committed murder in order to cover up the adultery that he'd already committed. He allowed his lustful passions to run in an illicit direction, and then he made it even worse by murdering a man in order to cover it up. People like that in our day deserve to be in the penitentiary. We hope they are, that they're not running loose so they can do this again. And this is King David, who the Bible tells us is a man after God's own heart. You find a hard time picturing that statement with what I've just described Was David under the impression that he earned righteousness by his good works? No, no, no. He he understood not. But oh, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Though he has sins that can and should be imputed to him. But blessed is the man to whom the Lord in grace, in mercy, in inexplainable favor will rather than imputing the sin which is real and the judgment which is deserved will instead impute righteousness which the man has not earned the woman has not earned anyone no one has earned but Christ has earned and God will give that freely oh that's the blessed man that's the blessed man because justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone And David understood that even back then. And he realized, I'm I'm a sinner deserving of eternal damnation. But God in his mercy has spared me the consequences of my own awful, awful, awful sin. And made me a recipient of his marvelous grace. I don't know who I'm preaching to today. If I were in my own pulpit, I would know some who would likely be there that I would know to be unsaved, who are usually in our congregation when I preach. There may not be anyone like that here today, but probably there is. I don't know who you may be. It could be you're here for the first time. It could be you are a regular attender at these services for whatever reason. And yet also you have heard but have pushed back the gospel for whatever reason. you've, You've manufactured justifications for not receiving Christ. You've manufactured rationale for not believing the gospel. You've manufactured, perhaps have borrowed from other people, the criticisms that have encouraged you to think that the Bible is not reliable and we, we cannot count on it. You've been pushing back and pushing back and yet here you are, I would say almost inexplainably, in a church where the gospel is preached and you're hearing it one more time, what a mercy of God. You have no guarantee of ever hearing it again. But dear friend, if you will acknowledge your sin and renounce all claims of self-righteousness, you, listen to me, you are not a good person in the eyes of God. No matter what your neighbors think, no matter what your friends think, no matter what your parents think, no matter what others think, You are not a good person in the eyes of God. You are a sinner deserving eternal condemnation. But, but, God sent his son, nailed him to a cross. That son lived the righteous life that you and I did not live and could not live. And that son bore the awful wrath of God that you and I deserve. And that son rose again from the grave. And that son is sitting upon the throne of God in heaven. And that son is coming back someday in eternal power and glory. And when he comes back, he is going to condemn the unbelieving and reward the believers. Now, dear friend, which category are you in? Which category do you want to be in on that day? What will make you one who will receive the favor of Christ on the day of his return? One thing and one thing only, believing, believing, believing the message which God has given. If you will believe, you will be justified. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that you have had mercy upon undeserving sinners. O Lord, by your Spirit, open the hearts of those who are outside of Christ and bring them to him today. And by your Spirit, arouse within your people a greater love for Christ, a greater appreciation for what you have done, a greater sense of our indebtedness to you. And may we live like those who are debtors to mercy alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.